thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this Christmas week edition of God, Law, and Liberty. Most likely, I assume you'll be listening to today's podcast either before or shortly after Christmas. And this may be the most important podcast we've ever done on God, Law, and Liberty. And I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends over your social media channels. Because today, what I'm praying that I will be able to do is connect for you the story of the Incarnation, the most fundamental theological principle in the entire Bible, which I know sounds like an exaggeration, but I'll explain it as we go along. To the last two episodes of God, Law, and Liberty, the December 17th podcast with Dr. George Grant and the December 10th podcast with Jeff Schaefer, in which Mr. Schaefer provided a worldview perspective on the oral arguments made December 1st in the United States Supreme Court over whether Roe versus Wade should be upheld or modified or reversed. That decision, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, was the watershed decision by the Supreme Court in 1973 stating that the Constitution ensured the right of a woman to end her pregnancy and the liberty to escape the consequence of her sexual activities. And the second thing I pray I'll be able to accomplish today is that by connecting the podcast with Dr. Grant and Mr. Schaefer to the Incarnation, I will be able to demonstrate why God might even consider the defense of Mississippi's abortion law, in the case argued December 1st, even by Christians, futile and of no enduring value in his sight. Now, it would seem to be hard to believe that arguing in front of the Supreme Court that the court reverse row that it uphold Mississippi's law, which prohibits doctors from performing abortions after 15 weeks gestation, except essentially to save the life of the mother, that somehow arguing in favor of that law would not be something that God would consider of enduring value and futile in his sight. So, as we turn to this subject, I want to begin with a verse of Scripture that I used to open the podcast with Dr. Grant on the 17th. It's from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And Paul writes as follows, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and to knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now let's, let's break that passage down for just a moment if we can. If you want your heart 
to be encouraged. If you want to know how your heart can be knit together in true love to other persons, not pseudo-love or what man might deceive us into thinking is love, but the love that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you want to have a full assurance of an understanding of the world and the way it works, what Dr. Grant was talking about last week, if you want to have all the riches that come with that kind of understanding, what is this world? What is going on? What is happening? Where is it going? Then he says, then you need to have the knowledge of the mystery of God. And what is the mystery of God? He says it, the Father and of Christ. That is the incarnation, John three sixteen. For God, the Father, sent his Son. That's what it's saying. The Father, God, is sending his Son into the world. And we talked in last week's episode with Dr. Grant that that's part of the creed or the declaration or the statement of Chalcedon that Jesus was truly man and truly God. And he says here that in the understanding and the knowledge of this mystery are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, does he not, that if you don't have an understanding of that mystery, you won't have the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you need to keep from being deceived by persuasive words. You see, we're rarely deceived by words that are not persuasive. It sounds good. It sounds right. And what God is saying here is that that may be the wisdom of men, and God makes the wisdom of men foolishness. That's what he goes on to say in 1 Corinthians. And he says that you need to become foolish in order to become wise, to become foolish in the eyes of the world. I mean, that's what Paul says there. And so how does that relate to the conversations that we've had the last two weeks? So to help draw these connections, let's start with this comment from Dr. George Grant in response to the question that you'll hear me ask about how do we do things for the glory of God. So let me, let me bring this down to a real practical level. How do we do everything for the glory of God? And, and I've been grappling with that for the last few years too. It says here that we have to come to the, to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, that God shines that light in us. And if we argue cases in front of the Supreme Court, like we just recently had the Dobbs argument on abortion, right? when we had the arguments on Obergefell about a marriage, when we don't ground them in, in creational realities, but instead make them mere matters of pragmatism, oh, we have marriage or because- preference. Or preference. Or preference. That's right. But when we, we have- a good marriage- preference, uh, and your preference might be uh, in accord with the creational mandates. But if it's just preference, then it's a flimsy argument. Okay. So if we depart from the creational mandates, the crea- creational realities, the most important in our current culture, seemingly right now, is that one, God's the creator. We don't believe that. Uh, secondly, that he made us male and female and making us male and female uh, was consistent with the image of God. So therefore, it has to reflect something of the glory of God. And then he joined the male and the female together in marriage, which again would have to reflect the glory of God. Now, 
Listen then to how Jeff Schaefer describes his overall perspective from a worldview perspective of the oral arguments in Dobbs. A, a general impression that I came away with after listening to the oral argument <clears throat> was, I guess I would say, is to the surreal character of the hearing before the court, the, the moral dullness on the surface of the discussion at the court, the absence of displayed awareness or discernment of the anthropological verities that are implicated in this abortion dispute was remarkable and disconcerting. Um, instead, we heard used this strange dialect of anemic proceduralism of made-up case law factors. So, you know, several of the participants, um, notably, pretended anguish or befuddlement, uh, suggesting that the question presented in Dobbs is a difficult one whether the Constitution forbids states to legislate against the grisly murder of innocent human life in the, mo- in the womb. Mm. Hear me. Yeah. The attenuation of the courtroom exchanges from the gravity of the matter that was under consideration was on display in this form of argument that was deemed proper to the occasion. Now think about this. The court was considering the murderous holocaust of its own making and continuance. Yet the themes of the oral argument principally treated considerations like uh, the, the price of contraception relative to abortion, or whether the court should uphold its past rulings because a lot of people like them and have designed their lives around the court's elimination of state authority to restrict abortion, or whether the court will look unprincipled if it rules one way or the other on the question, thereby risking loss of institutional credibility, or whether the women's, woman's interest in aborting is sufficiently served by a post 15 week prohibition instead of a contentious viability standard, or how a row reversal may impact women's workplace prospects if they have to contend with pregnancy and child rearing responsibilities. All this is ghastly. When this sort of analysis marks the outer limits of acceptable argument, we can see our lamentable condition. Did you pick up on what he was saying there? His overall impression was the moral dullness of the oral argument. He, he mentions an apparent unawareness of the anthropological verities at stake. Now, what's he saying there? The truth about what it means to be human, what it means to be human in society. He said there was a moral dullness, a tone deafness, a lack of any discernment that what we're talking about has to do with what it means to be human and to be human in the midst of society. It was missing, and it was all about procedural niceties and arguments over the interests of women compared to the interests of the state. That's what was going on. Now, let's go back to another statement by Dr. Grant. Yeah, one, one of the things that we do oftentimes in the meetings that, uh, that you and I both go to yeah. uh, is we deal with second and third order consequences or yeah. symptoms rather than roots, root yeah. issues, root principles, root causes. Right. And if we try and solve things at the level of second and third order consequences or symptoms, we'll never get to the root problems. And if we don't have root principles, then all we're left with are the low-hanging fruits of our preferences. So do you see the connection that Dr. Grant is drawing here to what Jeff Schaefer just said? 
In other words, we can argue about all these things about the cost of contraceptive and and the burdens of, of motherhood and so on and so forth, all those things that got argued about. But, but those are second and third order consequences that flow from the denial of the way God made us and the way we're supposed to work and how human sexuality is supposed to work. And nobody in the Dobbs oral arguments wanted to address that question. But it's not just the Attorney General of the state of Mississippi. It's not just the justices on the United States Supreme Court. I'm going to read to you a web page from a noted Christian organization explaining why it supports Mississippi's law. And you'll see that the arguments advanced here do not deal at all with what Jeff called the anthropological verities of what does it mean to be human and to live in society. Here was the first reason. It protects unborn children. Now that's great, and as Dr. Grant said, that protection of unborn children would line up with a creational reality. But listen to how the reason for that is explained not because the unborn is a person and a human being and therefore entitled to legal protection under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause that applies to persons. Instead, the argument is this, I'm quoting, at 15 weeks, unborn babies have a heartbeat, can move around and kick, sense and respond to physical stimulation, taste what the mom eats, a hiccup. They can also feel pain. Now see, all of those things are what Dr. Grant would call second and third order results of the fact that you are a human being made in the image of God. But even here, they don't want to really touch on that issue. Now, the, the simple answer to that is, so, that's your preference, that those things are more valuable than the woman's freedom from the consequences of her sexual activities or her freedom from the burdens of pregnancy, or her freedom from the burdens of motherhood. You see how this is just an argument for preference? That's why Dr. Grant said this is a flimsy argument from a worldview perspective. The second one given, it advances women's physical and emotional health and well-being. It goes on to say 15 weeks ensures women are not put at greater risk of death, illness, or psychological trauma that later-term abortions cause. Well, that would be true, and of course, physical and emotional health and well-being is, is something that would be consistent with, with the way God intended us to be, if we operate as God intended us to be. But see, this is a pragmatic matter, one related to where this line might be so that uh, we can balance this interest of this thing in the womb with the woman's health risks. And that's what led to the discussion of is 15 weeks better than viability or is viability better than 15 weeks? See, again, that's just matters of preference. The third reason it gave is it preserves the integrity of medical providers. The medical profession, it says, is better able to protect life than destroy it. Well, the question is, when should the medical profession protect life and, and when should it protect the interest of the mother in being free of the pregnancy and free of uh, the burdens of motherhood? 
And then it says it promotes science and reflects lessons learned from advanced medicine and technology. Well, that's a purely pragmatic thing. And in fact, it's even worse because it says the truth that we are asserting all of these things is rooted not in the wisdom and knowledge that comes from seeing who the triune God is, that this triune God was at work in all aspects of creation and in all aspects of salvation in the incarnation. Think about it. The Father sent the Son, but the Son came because the Holy Spirit hovered, as in the beginning, over the waters, over Mary, and brought into existence in her this life of Jesus. You see, it's, it's saying these things we know, we, we, we need to make sure they're in accord with science, not the Word of God. Now, I just ask you, how is God glorified in that? I want to close with something that I just wrote in a letter to our supporters in January. We'd love to have you as one of those persons. But I cited to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul says, and I talked about this with Dr. Grant, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. The Apostle goes on there to say, though, that each one's work will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So there, there's work that we can do. And the question is, what's the nature and the quality of the work we do? And he says that work not rightly built on that foundation will be burned up. In other words, it will have no enduring value in God's sight. What this means is if my life, if facts work, if your organization's work does not represent a right and true application of the true wisdom and knowledge that can only be derived from a right understanding of what is communicated to us in the triune nature of God, then our work is futile. When we forget that, we begin to slip into this worldview that says the incarnation is only important relative to my salvation, but not to the rest of the way the world works. And that creates a dualism and a compartmentalism and will lead you to doing exactly what Jeff Schaefer said, exactly what George Grant said, talking about second and third order causes, not root issues, not anthropological verities. And what will happen is you'll be most interested in what will win the day. What will work? What will get Roe reversed, even if the reversal does not ever straighten out anything that's actually true about what the word person means in the United States Constitution? And that kind of worldview, what will work, is the feudal wisdom of the world. Now, I'm going to tell you why in these closing moments that winning the day what will work is futile in God's sight. I want to turn your attention to Habakkuk 2, 13 and 14. You can read it on your own, but what he says there is that God's purpose is that the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And so in the preceding verse, he actually says, your nations labor in vanity and you work for fire in vanity. 
in other words, nation building and even working for necessities can be futile and, and eternally purposeless if it's not done ultimately in order that the knowledge of the glory of God would fill the earth. Now, how is that supposed to happen? Well, God's purpose for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God is brought to pass as God creates for himself a people who have, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, come to the knowledge of the glory of God and then proceed to do as God originally commanded the first Adam to do in Genesis 1, 28, fill and subdue the earth. The only reason Jesus Christ took on human flesh, died, and was raised again was to create, as it says in Ephesians 2.15, one new man out of the two, the Gentiles and the Jew, for himself, Titus 2.14. A new man for himself that's without spot, wrinkle, or blemish, Ephesians 5.27, in order that he might forever share with them the new heavens and the new earth released from the bondage of the curse. Romans 8, Ephesians 1.10, Revelation 21.2. So if we ignore these anthropological verities which find their meaning, their truth in who God is, we are building in a way that's futile. And at the Family Action Council of Tennessee, I can only say this. The way we are trying to argue the marriage case, to argue that persons are human beings whose life comes from the Creator, our quoting of Blackstone for that purpose, our use of the Ninth Amendment for that purpose, our stating that marriage is a thing that is not created by government, and the right of man and woman to enter into marriage is not granted by the government, all rests in the fact that there are anthropological verities, and that God has made the world and all that's in it, and he defines it. Now, the question is, David, if you do that with these arguments on abortion or these arguments on marriage, will you win? Will your arguments win in court? Will the Marital Contract Recording Act get enacted? And my answer is, I don't know. I will have to leave that up to God. But here's the point. Resident in this idea that the question is what will work is the idea that the whole purpose of our engagement in the spheres of law and government is to win. And as I just said, that's not why Christ came. He came to build a church a people for himself, and reclaim his earth. So, maybe, maybe the Marital Contract Act won't pass. I'll leave that up to God. But here's what I can say. If by putting forward that bill, if by our discussion of that bill, God uses it to build up or edify his church, Ephesians 4.12, and expose wickedness, Ephesians 5.11, then I will submit our work was well done and will endure. 
And that's how we connect the incarnation of Christmas to the fields of law and government. I wish you the absolute best for a Merry Christmas, grounded not in persuasive words, but in the truth of the incarnation of the Son of God to bring salvation and light to a dark world. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.